Are you ready for some good news? Some good news? I am. What's the good news? This is uh, hot off the presses. According to Fox News, there is no evidence that the Chinese spy balloon was used to spread COVID. (laughs) What? Some commentators cast the renewed fury of the Christian far-right in recent years as the final lashings out of an increasingly irrelevant fringe, while others see in this group a renewed and rising fascist tendency in American politics. In order to tease out these and other threads, we are investigating the Christian far-right. This is All the Rage. <laughs> was, was, that a, was that a theory? How did, did, how did I miss that theory? I, I I think it was a very fringe concern, but it was it, it rose to the level <laughs> that a member of the House Intelligence Committee was asked whether there was any evidence that they were using the balloon to spread COVID, and there is no such evidence. So that's great but, news. But it, that is that is great news. I guess it. I'll, confirms. I'll sleep better at night knowing that. Uh, the only way I will come into contact with COVID will be the uh, old-fashioned way, which is to say, every every building in every city. <laughs> oh, it reminds me of that that old joke, right? That like House Intelligence Committee is an oxymoron. Yeah, I, I don't know. Seems to fit the bill. Well, that is. Thank you, thank you for putting my mind and heart at ease. I've been losing sleep, wondering whether or not. <laughs> That balloon was was spreading COVID over the United States. Uh, any other any other good news? You know, personally, professionally, globally. Uh, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> uh, I've just returned from. I've just returned from two weeks away uh, for some for some training, which was good but full. So. Trying to get back into the regular routine of life, but it's good to be with you. I'm excited about our our episode. You know, dovetailing with our last couple of episodes where we talk about the approach to scripture and how scripture is used to justify various positions, because we're going to be talking about uh, ethics of same-sex relationships, same-sex marriage to a degree, but also just uh, sexual ethics in general, LGBTQ issues, how those are um, adjudicated and refereed by people who have interpretations of the Bible, right? Right, right. Yeah, and it's it's not as if this topic is new in the news. I mean, it seems like it's it's always sort of at the forefront for the past few years, but um, it's sort of risen past, to a past few fever. Decades. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, certainly, uh, it's sort of risen to a fever pitch over the last few weeks following uh, the release, the public release of a clip from Andy Stanley, a megachurch pastor out of um, Atlanta, and somebody who I I don't know if I could call him a friend. I certainly don't know if he would call me a friend at this point, but somebody with whom I have worked in the past, have a, an acquaintance with uh, at the very least. Um, so somebody who I have actually long admired uh, in in ministry for for many years, um, had the privilege of working with on some writing projects a few years ago. Um, but within, 
uh, the past couple of weeks. I don't know the exact date. I can find it out. There was a public clip released of his from a conference. The, he hosts the Drive Conference every year or every couple of years at his church, um, which is basically a conference for pastors to come to to, to get the, the best practices for leading churches, according to Andy, who has been uh, at the forefront of the attractional model and mission uh, for a long time. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to play the entire clip uh, here in a few minutes. Um, but to, to set the context of it, this clip came from, so it's, it's a message that Andy is delivering primarily to, to pastors and church leaders. So this isn't um, just a Sunday sermon at his church, but it's a, um, it's a conference message to church leaders and pastors. Um, and then a couple of just like introductory notes, what you're going to hear in this is something that I actually ripped from another podcast. So what's interesting is this particular message, if it was available online at any given time in the past, it is no longer available online. You can't find this talk anywhere. Um, I don't know if it was pulled down. Nowhere after. but here. <laughs> Nowhere but here. And the podcast and that I ripped it from. That's <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. That's exactly right. Um so some other podcast basically did exactly what we're going to do, although they had a better quality copy of the original, um, and I have ripped it from them. So you might hear, um, you know, a, a comment or a sound effect here and there throughout it, and the video quality is not fantastic, but I, I think I captured most of it in its entirety, and it's about eight and a half minutes long. Uh, but this particular clip is Andy talking to church leaders about the reality of gay people existing in their churches and sort of how to address it as church leaders. Um, now, you have not heard this clip in its entirety, correct? Correct. There is a, a portion of this clip that went sort of somewhere between viral and mega viral. It was a, it was a big deal. A lot of people talking about it, quoting from it, sharing it around. And so I'm familiar with that kind of two-ish minutes and some of the pull quotes from it that have ended up in a lot of articles, other people discussing it and so on. Um, but I have not listened to anything beyond that mega viral portion of it. So I will be, re I'll be responding in uh, real time, my first listen. And so I figure we'll play part of it and then discuss and then uh, proceed uh, th through it that way. Yeah. And to set it in context, what we're listening to is not the entire talk. It's about eight and a half minutes from a much broader talk. As a matter of fact, this is only 0.3 in a four or five point talk um, about, my guess is changes that are happening in, in the larger context of the church. Um, and this is only one point in that, but he, he very specifically addresses the reality of um, gay people in and their expression and their existence in church life. Um, so let's go ahead and pull that up and we'll just start listening and then we'll we'll pause as we want to react. I, I used that one. Okay, number three. The faith of the next generation is worth... Okay, here we go. Leading our churches to acknowledge there are gay people, not just straight people with a sin problem. What does this have to do <laughs> Let's with the next pause generation? It right there. It has everything to be clear. Great. 
So, so the thing I, I want to point out here is listening to other people talk about this particular quote, it seems as though he's saying there are both gay people with a sin problem and straight people with a sin problem. But I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying here is essentially gay people exist, that gay people are not just straight people with a sin problem, right? He's acknowledging the existence of people who have a specific orientation, um, not just – he's not saying, you know, gay people with a sin problem exist and straight people with a sin problem exist. I only say that because the podcast that I ripped this from seemed to interpret it the other way, but I think they got it wrong. Yeah, I think pretty clearly. Um and it seems basically what he's driving at is that sexual orientation is a real thing. Exactly. And that I think. some people have a quote unquote homosexual orientation or gay orientation, um, whatever. It's not simply a matter of every single person is straight and some people who are straight have an excess of lust or whatever that drives them into the sin of homosexuality, which is how today, even today, some far right conservatives construe human nature that way, right? They don't believe in the concept of orientation. Correct. Right. And he's correct. I think rejecting that position. It's not just straight people with a sin problem. Also, there are gay people. Yes. And before we start this again, I think it probably is at least worth noting that we did reach out um, to Andy Stanley to ask him if he wanted to talk with us about this particular um, uh, clip and the reaction to it, and he very politely declined. Um, so what we're saying is our best speculation, um, and if he decides to watch this at some point and wants to offer any corrections, we'd be happy to you know, acknowledge the fact that we have interpreted something wrong. Sure. Or, you know, d- Death of the Artist, we've, we've interpreted it as as it appears to us, and, and he is now just one commentator among many about what the meaning of this text is. There we go. They assume that. But as long as they think that we don't understand that, they can't hear us. They just can't. Now, is that fair? No. Is it even fair? Should it be that way? No. But it's just that way. And, and this is so complicated, and this is so difficult. Now, if you're gay, don't hear me saying you're complicated and you're difficult. You're not the problem. The church is still trying to adjust to a reality that we struggle with, and we struggle with it for good reason. This is so easy personally. In fact, I, I don't know all of you, but I, I bet for 99% of the, the people in the room, this is easy personally. You know gay people. You have gay friends. You have gay relatives. You may have a gay son or daughter or granddaughter. You, you know, you do business with gay people. Gay people come to your church. You're not like, oh. <gasps> In fact, it's the opposite. It's like, I think they're gay. There's gay people here. It's great. I love our church. Where, you know, I mean, and if you're gay, I know, just be patient with us. We're weird. I know. But, but you understand because you're here because you love Jesus and you probably grew up in church and you know we're trying to figure things out. But at some point along the way, and this is a process, and I want to talk, drill down on this one a little bit. In it's fact, interesting how comfortable he seems framing the, the pronouns in this, the we and the you, and it's you, you gay people and us straight people, and we're all just trying to... Um, figure this out. I don't have much of a comment beyond that, but it is interesting how comfortable he is with those groupings, which, and I, I don't mean that as like an implicit critique. I think it's genuinely um, quite interesting and probably for a lot of the kind of gay people who are comfortable in a mega church or want to be comfortable in a mega church setting in the first place, the, um, 
the rejection of the need to tiptoe around the way that you talk about it is probably a welcome thing. Yeah, I think that's true. And we're also seeing here Andy putting into practice one of his sort of pillars of preaching. So in his book, um, I don't know if it's communicating for a change or if it's um, uh, deep and wide, but one of his principles for preaching is assume they're in the room. Uh, and usually he's talking about people who are not believers, right? When you preach, you should assume right. that there are non-believers in the room. Uh, in this case, he's clearly assuming that there are some gay people in the room that he's talking to, which again is interesting because the context it's a here- networking conference. It is for, for church leaders. Yeah. So whether he's assuming that there are gay church leaders in the room or he's assuming that this is going to be at some point broadcast for a wider audience, we don't know. We know that at some point it was available maybe and is now no longer available. <laughs> um, but right. yes, he uh, he's clearly assuming that, that somebody who has that orientation is in the room and listening to him and he's trying to talk to them, which again is one of the things I think that, that makes him a – such a capable communicator um, is he's willing, willing and able to say that in a way, but also notice how like it's not full affirmation right up front. He's even saying like, we're having trouble with this for good reason, right? He's, he's really trying to hold a very diverse audience together and give everybody something to hang on to and also cause a little bit of tension. Okay. Continuing on here. I, I in my notes, I put, I was going to read this one and say, good luck. Let's go to number four, but I, that would be mean, okay? So personally, this is not a problem. You love people. You don't write people off because of their, their sexual preference. I mean, we all know how to love people. That's not it. But corporately, it is challenging, and it's challenging for good reasons. Pause again to say <laughs> the basic point, like interpersonally, most of us don't struggle with this, is – like that's a real admission to make, mm -hmm. especially coming from a sort of evangelical or theologically conservative type background. Um, and I guess I have two thoughts about that. One is um, the far right recognizes that this has been a deliberate strategy by gay rights activists over the last 50 years, 60 years, um, that the idea that if you get to know gay people, you'll realize gay people are not fundamentally different from other people. They're just people who are gay, right? And right. that will take away the, the stigma and break down barriers and that they actively that – that they've taken that insight, the right has, has taken that insight of the effectiveness of that kind of like if your child or grandchild or, you know, a coworker or whatever comes out and it does not fundamentally alter the relationship. Well, they've taken note of the effectiveness of that kind of, you know, persuasion through exposure and they don't want to let trans people have the same type of success. Right. And so they very strongly and strategically push against any kind of uh, representation or exposure or normalization of trans people's lives and experiences precisely because they know it can be really effective. Right. Exactly. Broad social change level. Right. Yes. 
Yes, absolutely. And in fact, I'm I'm certain that that is the rationale behind things like the don't say gay bill in Florida that we've talked about, right? Because people people know, and the far right, like you said, admits the effectiveness of it. They know that if if there was another example of this recently um, at a at a Christian school where where the administrator or somebody at a Christian school says, no, if there are people with gay parents in the school, we should expel the students. And he he mentioned explicitly because once they have a positive association with that, they're no longer going to be able to believe these things that we say about them, right? They know that they cannot demonize this group of people after they have had a positive experience with them. So things like don't say gay and all that are intended to prevent people from having any kind of positive experience because that experience has proven to demolish the stereotypes and the caricatures uh, that the far right needs to hold on to um, their particular worldview with regarding gay people and trans people and and all of them. Right. Um, But the other half of my response to this or my thought on this is it's, it's so accurate to basically every church setting I've ever been in, including very conservative ones, very, um, you know, theologically orthodox, culturally conservative, like actively the pastor will preach, you know, the, the normativity of the man woman relationship as, you know, the basis of the Christian family, uh, and so on. But also that church is very comfortable with like an ambiguously, gay couple or even yeah i'm trying to remember the phrase i used on twitter a few years ago discussing this uh it's like quasi ambiguous yeah like i've been in churches where there's clearly lesbian couple they live together they share a last name they put that last name on the front of their bible they wear wedding rings uh but everyone just calls them roommates and the (laughs) pastor preaches against the deviancy of their lifestyle in general terms, doesn't name them. And everyone just kind of agrees not to talk about it. And that is that I, I have seen variations on that in so many churches, including, yeah. and maybe even particularly very conservative churches. Sure. Sure. So I think he's, he's speaking to something that, that I mean, that I've seen a lot, right. That there's this difference between how we engage personally and how we engage corporately and well let's see where he goes with that but we have to embrace this challenge and we have to lead the way well I, i'm a gay person i'll just read it to you a gay person when i say gay men and women okay a gay person who still wants to attend church after the way the church has treated the gay community i'm telling you they have more faith than i do they have more faith than a lot of you a gay person who knows you know what i might not be accepted here but i'm going to try it anyway what have you ever done that as a straight person? Do you, where do you go that you're not sure you're gonna be accepted and you go over and over and over and over? Only your in-laws house. That's the only place you go where you know you're not completely accepted, but you go over and over and over and it's because you have to. But other than the in-laws, what environment do you continue to step foot in knowing at any moment you may feel ostracized? No place. I'm telling you, the gay men and women who grew up in church and the gay men and women who come to faith in Christ as adults who want to participate in our church, oh my 
goodness. I know 1 Corinthians 6, and I know Leviticus, and I know Romans 1. It's so interesting to talk about all that stuff. But just, oh, my goodness, a gay man or woman who wants to worship their heavenly father, who did not answer the cry of their heart when they were 12 and 13 and 14 and 15, God said no, and they still love God. Go ahead and pause it. We have some things to learn from a group of men and women. So a couple of things here. We're, we're getting into the meat of the, cl- of the clip that has gone viral. Um, mm-hmm. This is the part that's been shared over and over and over again. Um, it's not quite done yet, so we can address some of that at the end, some of the reactions to it. But I, I just want to uh, clarify here, there's been some confusion with what he says here about 12 and 13, 14-year-olds where God has said no, um, what he's talking about. And I, it's pretty clear to me that what he's talking about is people who prayed to God to change their hearts to become straight. Um, not that God right. has said no that to their orientation. incredibly clear. <laughs> I think so, but but based on some of the things that I've in research for this episode have seen, there are people like, what is he talking about? Saying no to what? Um, but I think he's talking about you know, people who like realize that they're gay as, as young pubescents, um, right? And, and pray. And I think we probably both know people like this, like realize at 10, 11, 12 years old that they're attracted to the, the same sex and pray to God that God would change their heart to make them straight because they, they believe right. the depths of the heart that it's sinful and it doesn't happen. Like they don't magically become straight. They're still same-sex attracted. Um, that's who he's talking about. And despite that, despite the fact that God doesn't change their heart, they continue coming to faith. And he's expressing his just awe of of their continuate continuation in this faith, where they feel like their very existence is at odds with God's will, and they still want to show up at church. So that, that's my read of the right. of his. Yeah, one hundred percent. And I I think it should be basically disqualifying for anyone who hears that and doesn't immediately pick up on, on what he's saying to have a, you know, strong opinion on the, the content of this, because <laughs> like, it's like, it's fine if you're not equipped to have the conversation, but don't have the conversation. Like that's, that's extremely clear. <laughs> Good. I'm In glad you opinion. agree. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, it'd be funny if we didn't. <laughs> yeah. So go ahead and roll. We have some things to learn from a group of men and women who love Jesus that much and who want to worship with us. And I know the verses. I know the clobber passages, right? And you know what? I think you are. I go think ahead. you wouldn't come to uh, a like you One of the major criticisms I've seen of this clip is that he just brushes over the Bible, right? He says, I, I, I know those verses. I know First Corinthians. I know Romans. I, I, I know all that. Uh, I know the, cl- those cl- you know, and, and they're, they're hammering him for calling him the clobber passages because th- that quit, that is essentially, that's the language that people who affirm LGBT relationships use, right? Clobber passages. That's not people who are opposed to LGBT verses. Don't use a, don't say that's clobber passages. They say that's just the Bible, man. That's just like the, the word of God. <laughs> it's the word of God. Um, so the fact that he's using that language is for some people, de facto proof that, you know, Andy has, has gone uh, all in and, and fully apostatized and is just 100% affirming, um, which I think is not an accurate read of, of where Andy is. And I think that's going to, 
come through a little bit later in this clip. I don't want to spoil it for you. Um, but yeah, just the fact that he like he doesn't actually address the biblical text at all. He just sort of like casually acknowledges that there, oh, maybe there are some verses that could, and then like moves past them as if they don't matter. Um, right. For for many of his interlocutors, this is just the proof in the pudding that he's apostatized after so many of the other things that he's already said that he's come under fire for in the last, you know, seven or eight years. Some of which I've you know gone to his defense publicly. Uh, for but this right. is just proof that he has uh, abandoned the the authority of the Bible, right? Yeah, because the big one was unhitching, right? Unhitching the New Testament Unhitch, from un- the old. Is that right? Unhitch, yeah. Your your uh, well, unhitch the, the New Testament from the old, and also unhitch your faith from the Bible tells me so, right? Um, right, right. He, he did. The, he did. The, I don't want to get into all of the details, but he did this whole thing about how the foundation of our faith is not the Bible. Um, the foundation of our faith is the resurrection of Christ, and and the Bible bears witness to that. Um, but really, cutting at for some people, the the core concepts of biblical authority and biblical inerrancy. So for them, this is just further proof that what they called back in 2015 was spot on, and he's just continued down the path of apostasy. Mm-hmm. Right, but yeah, the the use of the word clobber passages and the very comfortable use, right. Um, it seems to communicate something the same, you know, it's, it, it, but in some ways it's also kind of like the exchange student who comes back and, and someone says, Oh, how was Paris? And they say, you mean Paris? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Like I, excuse me, I've picked up the vernacular. Thank you. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And we'll be criticized for it. And there's no perfect way to do this, but I can give you a hint. Well, you do what Jesus did. You know who Jesus started with? Jesus never started with theology. Jesus started with the people in front of him. And he went from there. I mean, you know, if, you're, if your theology gets in the way of ministry, like if there's somebody you can't minister to because your theology, you have the wrong theology. Is that clear? Throw the Pharisees crazy. It's like, how can you go there? And Jesus is like, because they're there. That's why I'm going there. Yeah, but don't you know about them? She's like, I just don't see the world that way. Here's how I see the world. There are people lost to God and there are people who've connected with God. So I just want to help Disconnected people get connected. I'm, I'm a simple person. That's what I do. And I'm just telling you, the men and women I know who are gay, their faith and their confidence in God dwarfs mine. And so not only is there room, there's plenty of room. And we're going to figure that out. And you're going to figure it out. And if you don't, you can say goodbye to the next, next generation because they figured it out. Because it's personal. It's their friends. It's their good friends. their friends' friends. It's their parents' friends. So we can do this. Um, now, here's something I Go ahead, pause. Down on, uh, that is related to this. So we're about to transition now from the portion of the clip that's gone viral. Uh, and I think even that those la- that last 30 seconds or so is probably not in most of the clips. When he starts talking about Jesus and friends, like it, it usually ends with him calling it the clobber passages because that makes for a really nice like Twitter <laughs> bite saying Andy has yeah, abandoned the- scripture. Yeah, the version I heard ended with um, not only is there room, there's plenty of room. And that's the, the cutoff. Right. So, yeah, shortly after that. And so, it, and if you stop it right there, it really makes it sound as if Andy is making the case for like full and unashamed affirmation. Right. Um, and, and, and to be clear, I think what he said certainly is a move in that direction but 
before we go on, I, I want to get sort of your impression based on what you've heard up to this point before we move into the second half of this. Do you think he's making the case for for full inclusion and affirmation of same-sex people? Or do you think he's just making room for their existence in the church as an acknowledgement? Well, I think it's a, a tiny bit more than the second option. Like, I don't think it's just acknowledging their existence in the church. Um, but, you know, ju- like given just the clip that we've heard with no uh, external context. And I don't, I don't have a ton of external context, right? I don't know um, Andy Stanley or his writings or his church um, in, you know, particularly well, but given, so there's not a whole lot of external context influencing how I interpret this. Um, But just from what I hear, um, it strikes me as very, ambiguous as it could be the statement of someone who's fully affirming, but it definitely does not require someone to be affirming to have said and agreed with everything that he says. Right. Because there's sort of this uh, spectrum within church life and in the, like, you know, the LGBT discussion as it's developed over the past 20 ish years, um, you get this set of words, including welcoming, inclusive affirming and those aren't all over you know perfectly overlapping right 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 and um what is the the church clarity project yes is is one that exists not you know and it's 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 been a little while since i've looked at um what they're doing currently but it was launched with the idea that they're not trying to influence any church's particular theology um or belief, but they want every church to very explicitly state what their position is so that someone who is, for example, looking for a church in their city or is traveling or what have you can have clear guidance when they go to a church because there were a lot of churches in the like mid aughts and early, no, probably in uh, the early 2010s who were putting this language on their website because they thought, well, the old people aren't looking at the website anyway, and we want to attract young people. And so we can put this on the website about like radically inclusive. We welcome everyone. Welcoming. Yeah. But if you if you were gay and you went to this church, it would be great for your first couple of weeks. And then you'd, you'd sign up and, and get involved in something else. And at some point, you know, some junior official uh, – you know, sub pastor of some sort would, would come to you and say, let's get coffee. Right. <laughs> right. right. Yep. And you yep. would, and you would find out that, uh, actually you could not be in any sort of, uh, serving position or leadership position, uh, at all, unless you, I mean, divorce, divorce your partner <laughs> Right. Right. Um, right. And I, and you know, I'll, I'll, I'll throw bombs here. I know for a fact, you know, Life Church, which is Craig Groeschel's church. Um, Craig Groeschel, I don't, I don't know how directly he was involved in this. In fact, I would guess not because they're set up on this very like corporate distance type model. Um, I worked at Life Church um, in, in college a bit at a couple of their campuses. Um, and I don't issue saying what so. <laughs> nobody knows this. This is this is inside information. Yeah, have I not mentioned this at all on the pod? 
not on the podcast. I mean, I knew this personally, but you've not mentioned any yeah. at, at on the podcast at all. Yeah, no, I uh, I worked at a couple of their campuses. In a, I mean, not like in a full time staff position, but uh, I, I got paychecks to do things. But um, subsequent to that, so this was years later. But you know, I have a friend who had this exact thing happen to them and got involved and was volunteering, uh, doing like bus ministry, which they were really big in. Uh, and then at a certain point, they, you know, the like, campus pastor or the campus associate pastor, because they're this massive corporate bureaucracy, uh, took them aside and said, this, this, is, this is the end of the line unless you repent and, you know, kind of commit yourself to not being, not only not being in a same-sex relationship, but to renouncing that, you know, portrait of your identity, right? The, the label of gay Christian, even if you were committed right. to celibacy was, uh, was a problem for them. Whereas right. other churches would, would go to the point of saying you can be a gay Christian and identify that way and use that terminology, use that language, but you have to commit to celibacy. And then right. another church might say, you know, so there, is this whole spectrum of, you know, inclusive, welcoming, affirming, fully affirming, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it's not at all clear from the statement thus far what exactly he is promoting in his – or I mean to this network of pastors. Correct. At least that's how it lands with me. Certainly. I, I You know, you don't get from this that he would – officiate a gay marriage or allow a I hate I hate this term but but practicing a gay person in in leadership I don't I don't know he just seems to be saying listen the fact that they've been so mistreated and keep showing up means something and it means something significant not necessarily that what they're you know that um, their relationships, or orientation are morally or biblically licit, just that, man, like we need to love them and love them well because they're here um, and not drive them out, which I think will become clear in the, in the second half of this episode. But I'm with yeah. you. I, I, I don't think that there's, I don't, I understand why, why his enemies are framing this the way that they are, right? Saying, look at this. He's clearly uh, LGBTQ affirming, which, in, in full transparency, I wish that he was. <laughs> um, but I, I don't think that that's, that's necessarily what's happening here. It, it does, however, imply certain rejections, right? It's rejecting of like reparative therapy. Yes. I, I don't see how you could take a position that reparative therapy is certainly necessary, but maybe even like – permissible or acceptable right while affirming the things that he said right so it's it's it, it does entail certain rejections and acceptances right accepting the reality of some people are gay which is a like for some for a lot of folks and maybe for maybe Maybe for the Christian far right as such right maybe there yes. are zero exceptions to this um, that is just a you have crossed a line in the sand and put yourself outside of what they would consider like acceptable Christian faith and, and teaching. I think that's uh, certainly accurate. I, I, I think that to acknowledge 
that these people exist and that there is room for them in the church without any kind of qualification, but we must call them to repentance, right? Because we don't hear anything from him mm-hmm. to that effect in this clip at all. He's not saying there's room for them if they repent, there's room for them, but we must teach them the truth, right? It is a pretty unqualified there's room, period. And I think you're right. For the far right, that is an unacceptable level of acceptance and affirmation, even if it's not the level of affirmation that you and I would like or that people from the LGBTQ community would uh, ultimately like. You agree? Yes. So we're going to transition now. He's going to move into another point, um, and he's going to frame this a little bit differently. Uh, and I'm going to leave it at that because I, I want to sort of hear your unvarnished reaction to to what comes next. Okay, I can't wait. <laughs> it's kind of a side topic, but it's so important. Here's something to keep in mind, okay? Never take someone's church away from them unnecessarily. Here's huh. what I mean by that. I'll um, give you an example. About, I don't know, almost. What'd you say? I'm sorry. That wasn't me. That was one of the uh, leftover clips that I couldn't get rid of from uh, the podcast that I ripped this from. Gotcha. Well, they I think it was making a very bad point. I think it was, hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's what I heard. <laughs> or something to that effect. And I thought, what are you trying to get me to say? <laughs> I think you should leave this whole piece in here because this is funny. Oh, 100%. Okay. Continuing. About a little over a year now, there's a pretty big church in Atlanta, and they went 100% in on CRT. I mean, like, just totally. And it not only divided the church, it almost destroyed the church. And here's what happens, because here's what happens when pastors don't understand what it means to be a pastor. You end up taking the church, and again, this is what happens. This pastor has been there about six years. Well, there there are people that have been 16 years, 20 years, and the people that have been there longer than the pastor had to leave their church because of what this guy went in on. He unnecessarily took people's church away from them. Don't ever, I don't care what your view is or my view is, don't ever take someone's church away from them unnecessarily. That's bad leadership and it's bad discipleship. Um, pastors who get up and announce, you know, because this is, you know, this, you saw some of this, it doesn't happen much anymore because it's so ridiculous. Pastors got up and we're affirming, they got up and announced, we're affirming. And then. Okay, those sound effects. From from the podcast was this, that I was this pod yeah was this podcast directed by Christopher Nolan? <laughs> I don't I don't know where why there's when bombs you dropping. when you said when you said when you said sound effects I was thinking like Howard Stern Shock Jock <laughs> like you know Zoo Crew Radio <laughs> yeah I have no idea why there are why there are bombs dropping I was able to get a lot of them cut out but in this case I would have yeah. lost like significant. Important content, but yeah, I I don't understand why bombs were dropping. Consider this free promotion for some podcasts that I refuse to name because I personally dislike them now. (laughs) Whoever they are, I don't know. You don't know, and hopefully they're not going to do some YouTube scrub. Maybe maybe these things are like there for like, I don't know, audio scrubbers to find out that we're ripping their content. I I have no idea. Well, we'll find out. Come at me, bro. No, this is (laughs) this is fair use. Okay. <laughs> so while you've got it paused, what are your impressions so far to this the second half of this clip that has not made it into the viral clips on Twitter? Yeah, this is this is reframing elements for me and it it certainly reveals 
that this is not a wild-eyed progressive leading this church discussion, right? <laughs> As if we had any doubt, but right. Right. No, I, th- I think... Um, I think that there is a kind of pragmatism that is at the core of all of the advice that he gave in the first half Mm -hmm. and that also comes through here, uh, maybe even more sharply, right? Um, But I, I can, in some ways I can see the criticism that people have that he's all method mm. and not content. Cause if it's about getting people to Jesus and Jesus is sort of this, you know, contentless container. And so you don't, in some ways you can unhitch the Bible from, from Jesus and have this sort of free floating. It's just a faith commitment, but not faith in anything in particular, which is, I think how some of his critics would frame it. I think that you also see that in this this framing of calling a church to racial justice or being infected with CRT, however you want to put it. (laughs) And the idea that, you know, some pastor who's only been in a church for six years is trying to foist this on the church to the point that parishioners who have been there for 16 years have had their church taken from them. Right. The question the question that immediately comes to mind is, is there anything on which a pastor should confront the church in such a way that it threatens taking the church from someone? Right. Right. Right? Does that, does my, does my question make sense? Does that uh, reaction make sense? It does. And I think it will make even more sense as you continue to roll the tape. Okay. Let's do that much anymore because it's so ridiculous pastors got up and we're affirming they got up and announced we're affirming and then the next sunday half the congregation's gone and it's the congregation is like we are i don't even know what that is i I, now i can't come back to my church and why can't i come back to my church because we hired this bozo pastor and he just took my church away from me now whether the person drops another bomb (laughs) i don't know what that sound effect was yeah that's pretty good but um yeah i think the point, and he hasn't landed on the point quite yet, so I, maybe I'm reacting before I should, but the point that you need to bring the church along with you and don't just step up one day and say, we're going to take this U.S. flag out of here because that's patriolatry, and if the church has not been prepared for that, then yeah, that's bad um, That's bad pedagogy, bad leadership, Um and so, so the idea that you have to bring the church along with you is that's a sound objection, right? So if you get up and as an example here, the pastor declares that they're affirming and half the congregation doesn't know what that means. The fact that half the congregation doesn't know what that means is a problem. Right. 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 But perhaps drawing a theological boundary around something and saying, look, this is who we are. Uh, is is not in itself a problem, right? But also, yes, the young the young upstart pastor who comes in all idealistic and says, "We're going to get rid of the uh, we're going to get rid of the old manual church sign where you have to slide the plastic letters in and get a, a 
digital sign instead, uh, you know, just comes in with this plan that we're going to change everything, not realizing that there is some saint in the church who for the past 40 years, it's been his job every Monday to go and change the letters. And that's right. his like Christian vocation. Um, not that I'm speaking from experience here. Uh, <laughs> I've been that pastor. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I've certainly been that pastor, but you're, you're exactly like, right. And, and he's going to get into it explicitly the difference. So he's coming at this from a, a, a pragmatic and from his perspective, pastoral role. And in, mm-hmm. in just a minute, he's going to draw a very clear line of distinction between a pastor and a prophet. Um, and so I kind of want to hear your reaction to that once he, once he makes that distinction. Is right or wrong? Is irrelevant? Your pastors and your leaders don't take people's church away from them. Unnecessarily, let me just keep my notes. Terrible leadership because they skipped discipleship, teaching, preparing, and nudging. They played the role of a prophet, not a pastor. You are not a prophet. You are a pastor. Very different role. Prophets drop in and drop truth bombs, and then they get on their chariot and go to the next place and drop truth. That's not what we're doing. We are leading people. We are not pace setters. We're pastors and shepherds. Pastors set direction, and they monitor the pace. They do not set the pace. You're not leading. You're... To be clear, those okays, I like it, were from the podcast I ripped this from. That that was not me speaking. <laughs> it's an interesting distinction, and I might I might go back and and listen to his uh, to the details of that distinction again. But it, I mean, it is a you know well recognized issue in pastoral theology that in in the Bible, we have these various models of how people or how religious leaders relate to their community. And you have priests and you have prophets and you have kings. And, and to an extent in the, especially in the like Protestant evangelical church, it, it, it's really one person's job to do all of those to some extent. Right. And that's a, that, is a difficulty of the kind of structure of church life that uh, the last 400 years or so have uh, created for us and bequeathed to us. Yes. Um, so I, I am, I am going to go back because I want to get the details right on how he distinguishes the prof- the prophetic role from the pastoral role. Yeah. Yeah. Not a prophet. You are a pastor. Okay. Very different role. All right. Prophets drop like in it. and drop truth bombs, and then they get on their chariot and go to the next place and drop truth. That's not what we're doing. We are leading people. We are not pace setters. Okay. We're pastors and shepherds. Pastors set direction, and they monitor the pace. They do not set the pace. You're- go ahead and pause. Uh, I just want to say that from my experience, I, I'm i torn here, right? I, I've been a pastor for – seven plus years. Um, and I've been a pastor who has probably leaned over the edge into the, into the prophetic more often than not based on my, my convictions. And from a pragmatic standpoint, I get what he's saying. I, I understand that leading real people 
where they are from one place to another place doesn't happen overnight. And I've been the guy who's been prophetic and has been yelled at, literally yelled at, (laughs) um, after church for saying some of the things. And I'm torn. I'm genuinely torn because I, I try to apply this to other things, right? I try to apply this to things like civil rights in the 1960s. And do we just say that like leading people gradually away from racism is the right pastoral tactic to not upset the apple cart and say, hey, you really should treat black people as full image bearers of God deserving of full civil rights? Or do we coddle people where they're at in their bigotry and racism so that we don't unnecessarily take their church from them? Right? I'm I struggle with that. I I I continually struggle with the balance between the pastoral and the prophetic and and asking whose comfort, whose privilege do I do I give the most attention to here? Like how slowly do I carry people along versus how boldly do I proclaim the truth of what I believe? It's a real tension, but I can't help but wonder. And, and here's one of my, you know, in full transparency, one of my litmus tests. I can't help but think that that Dr. King would hear this if he was talking about civil rights for African-Americans, would call him a white moderate who is more dangerous than the Ku Klux Klaner, right? And and I, I, I like Andy. And if he listens to this, Andy, I, I like you. You know that I like you. Um, <laughs> but I, I can't hear this and wonder if that's not what's happening here, putting the pragmatism of the comfortable over justice for the oppressed. Maybe that's not fair, but that, that's certainly how it strikes me. Yeah. Well, without knowing the specific policy recommendations he lands on, if he does, um, there's th- I, I, I guess there's only so much that, uh, that one can say. But I do think that the the definition of the pastor as one who sets the direction but not the pace, like there's something very compelling about that. Sure, yeah. Because if you're setting the direction, then you then the then the to, to use the 1960s analogy, the correct direction is not to coddle the parishioners in their bigotry, but to clearly state the unacceptability of those views and the ways that they don't comport with, you know, Christian uh, tradition and theology and, uh, and scripture. And to the degree that you've been trained to believe that they do, we will have a long project of, of reeducating you about what the Bible actually says about these, uh, about these subjects. Um, and it's it's for the pastor to bear with in in endless patience to bear with the parishioners 
in moving in the right direction, but at their pace. And I think that I, I suspect that what uh, Andy Stanley would say, or someone who makes this bifurcation between the prophetic and the pastoral role is that the, the prophets have an important role as well. And the pastors, in fact, are needed to prepare parishioners so that at these decisive moments, those truth bombs can kind of have a place to land and have fuel. Sure. Um, but that that's not the role of the pastor and that it's, it's best to kind of separate these things. I'm not, and you know, think, thinking just of social change at a, at a sort of structural level, like you do need both, right? You do need, you know, your MLK and your Malcolm X so that Malcolm X can terrify white people and then white people will be willing to deal with MLK. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. You you need both of these uh, for, for social change. It's a Hegelian dialectic, if you will. Um, (laughs) But I, I do have concerns or not even just not concerns. I just, I reject the characterization of the prophet as the one who throws truth bombs and then gets in their chariot, rides away, and then throws truth bombs somewhere else. Um, That model exists in the Hebrew Bible. But the other, but other models of prophetic relationships to people exist as well. There are prophets who are well known in a community and remain in, in relationship with the individuals of that community for years and decades, right? Like it's, it's not intrinsically the case that the prophet is a, a mendicant preacher, right? Right. Right. And especially if we go back to what he said in the first half of the clip, talking about the model of Jesus, right? I, I think we can say that Jesus was quintessentially both, but but at the end of the day, Jesus was murdered by the establishment for calling out prophetically their complicity with an oppressive status quo, right? Jesus didn't just move people along at the pace with which they were most comfortable or even just slightly above, right? He, he very clearly right. and very blatantly called out uh, the hypocrisy and, um, you know, religious malpractice for what it was. And so if we use Jesus, or even if we use, you know, and again, I, I'm, perhaps this is unfair, my familiarity with with Andy and some of his, his writings and things that I've collaborated with him on, you look at, at Paul in the New Testament, right, in making very clear statements regarding the acceptability of Gentile believers apart from circumcision, there was no pastoral sensitivity to that. It was, this is the way that we're doing it and you need to get on board. Um, you know, I, I again, Andy, I like you uh, and I, I really appreciate so much of what you've done. But it feels like there's a little bit of speaking out of both sides of the mouth here and, and, and a hesitancy to take a stand on something that is unequivocally right in order to appease people who, who, don't, who aren't quite ready to go there yet. Sometimes you just need to take a stand even if people aren't ready to go there yet because it's the right thing to do, not just as a prophet but also as a pastor because in the New Testament church – those roles are not as distinct as, as we would have them to be. We, we see this in Jesus. We see this in Paul. We see this in Peter. 
um, I think. Right. And especially at the earliest strata of the Christian church um, post-ascension, we see spirit-based charismatic leadership where it's not simply a matter of, well, you've got this job and so this is your job description. Right. People are, are called and enabled to exercise these things um, as the, as the situation calls for. Right. Right. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Shall we continue? Continuing on. You're not leading. You're trying to be a prophet. You're not a prophet. You go do that somewhere else. Have an itinerant ministry, you know, drop truth bombs and get your check and go on to the next thing. That's fine. There's a place for that in the world. Not here, but the place for that in the world. Right. That's why I love having Crawford. He's a pastor. Right. So this is the model. There are. I would love to, I would love for him to have dropped three examples of people who are good examples of prophets that he says, I support you. I support what you're doing. You're not a pastor. You shouldn't be a pastor, but good on you for doing the prophet thing. Well, yeah, I agree. It it seemed very dismissive. He's like, there's a, there's a place for you to drop truth bombs and your check. Just not here. He, he really makes it seem like the prophets are the ones who are just – who have no investment in what's going on. And that feels really dismissive to me. Yeah. I mean I don't think that like Robin D'Angelo is a prophet. For no. <laughs> no. Yeah, exactly. I don't know who he, would, who he would point to and say, hey, that's a really good prophet. And I affirm the work that you're doing as good as a good and important work. He, he really makes it seem like, yeah, you've got the easy job. Just drop the truth bomb, get your check and get out of here and leave us to clean up the mess. That's the impression I get. Maybe that's not fair, but that, that's the impression I get from hearing him talk about it like that. Yeah. C- kind of the way that uh, Bart regarded uh, uh, Billy Graham. <laughs> yep. There are too many. You're smart. You think about these things all the time. There are too many variables to expect everybody in our churches to keep up with our pace on anything. Not because the people in our church aren't smart, because they're busy. We think about this stuff all the time. So good leaders don't get up and announce change. Good leaders get up and they lead toward change. If you want to be an announcer, apply to be an announcer somewhere. That's not what we do. Our job is to lead, model, disciple, equip people to navigate cultural shifts in keeping with the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. Now you're saying, Andy, that sounds kind of dishonest and sneaky. You know it's not dishonest and sneaky. It's leadership, and it's shrewd. Jesus said you're to be wise as serpents and shrewd, excuse me, wise serpents. You're supposed to be wise as, harmless as doves and shrewd as serpents. We get so harmless, we forget sometimes we need to be shrewd. We need to be more snake-like in the appropriate Jesus kind of way, which means when people need to begin shifting their thinking, you don't get up and announce. You disciple and you teach people. So there are people, on the when it comes to the LGBTQ community and our churches. I cannot resist saying None of that is contradictory to the prophetic role. Certainly. Certainly. Like, like he has this characterization as, of, the, of the prophet as someone who is not just calling out things with an immediacy and saying, we need to move quickly toward this, but as, as someone who says, this, you need to come to this position. And if you're not here already, then to hell with you. Right. 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 When in fact, the the prophetic role can very much take on something that is deliberately paced toward 
what the impending crisis is, right? Um, so, something, for instance, like Nathan telling a parable about, you know, <laughs> some lord who, you know, like steals some lamb until the guy who, like, is the guy who is the man says, hold on a second, right? Absolutely, there's there's an art to being prophetic and getting people, like, to, to come along. You're exactly right. Yeah, the, just the, the <laughs> implicit, like, prophets are not shrewd, whereas we clever pastors, right? <laughs> right. I just can't, yeah. can't resist saying yeah. that. Okay. Yep. No, go ahead. No, no, you're good. Go ahead, roll tape. Right? There's some people that want to drag us too fast, and there's some people who want to pull us back too hard. Welcome to leadership. Welcome to pastoring. It's okay, but don't take anyone's church away from them unnecessarily. And if you're in a church and 95% of the church has sort of said, you know what, we're not going there, then maybe you need to go somewhere else. But don't get up and say, by golly, God called me. And I'm, you just be so careful. That's not loving people. That's something else. See, I'm actually quite comfortable with that. Sure. Right. And the, the idea that there is a, a kind of a reasonable expenditure of effort and and probability of success in implementing change in a community. And if 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 the consensus isn't there and if it doesn't look like it's it's going to be there, then you either have to decide, is this something that I can tolerate? Or do I need to go elsewhere? But again, I I I think that the binary between prophetic and pastoral on this is a false binary. Or also, perhaps there is the time and the place where you're in a place where 95% of the people don't agree with you, but you are convinced it's the right thing that for the sake of your soul and theirs, you say, thus saith the Lord, right? And you give people a chance to repent or be offended, right? I'm just like, Again, it sounds very right, biblical for right or wrong. I compare this with things like civil rights. Like if, if you're pastoring a church that says we don't think that that African-Americans, black people deserve full inclusion in civil rights. Like if 95 percent of people don't agree with you, you just like, you know, tuck your tail between your legs and move on. Instead of saying you need to repent of this bigotry and face the consequences or you're not pastoral. I don't buy it. I think there's a place every once in a while to say, listen, this is where I am planting my flag and I'm willing to face the consequences for it. And I want you to hear, thus saith the Lord, because I care about the state of your souls and you need to hear this, whether or not you're ready for it or not. There's a place for that in the pastorate. Now, again, he's been doing this far longer than I have with a much bigger church than I have, right? Um but I think I've got some some theological and biblical basis to make that point. As much as I I, I love you, Andy, if you listen to this. <laughs> so when it comes to this issue or any issue, keep that in mind. Our job is to lead, model, disciple, and equip people for those shifts according to the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. Um, don't take people's church away unnecessarily. But I'm not worried about you and us when it comes to this. I just want to make sure that we keep this front and center for the sake of the next generation. 
because God's doing incredible, incredible things and we wanna be a part of it. And yes, it's messy, not because gay people are messy, but because the church is messy and because of the history of the church. And once again, for those of you, if you're here and you're gay and maybe nobody even knows, I just wanna applaud you for your faith. And the fact that you would even step foot inside of a church and wanna worship Jesus in private and quietly because that's what's in your heart. And you long to know that your heavenly father accepts you and you're hoping the body of Christ will be a representation of his love for you. And I'm telling you, people in this room, they get that. And we won't do it perfectly, but we'll do it to the best of our ability. I have heard the last couple of lines of that as well. Yeah. I don't know if it was stitched together with an early part or if it was just that part Someone also clipped and highlighted just that section, but I've heard a, a little bit of that. And I mean, I, I think I see why, because that uh, pisses off the conservatives. Right. And I do want to say in the midst of this is maybe as critical as I've been in this last half of the, the approach she's taken. I am extremely grateful that somebody with the platform and reach that he has is willing to say even that, right? That is genuinely for evangelicalism writ large, a step in the right direction. I think it's hedged a little bit. I think it's a a little bit cautious, um, but it is definitely a step in the right direction. And to his credit, he's experienced remarkable backlash from this. I mean, he's, he's experienced incredible backlash uh, from this, from across the board of, of people who have accused him of, of all, all out apostasy. So while I, I stand firmly by my, my criticisms that maybe it's not, it's not far enough, or maybe it's hedging his bets a little bit, softening the approach a little bit. I understand the pastoral approach and I am grateful that he has said what he has said, um, and I hope that people are willing to hear that and and maybe maybe it does move them an increment or two in the right direction because as much as I would like to believe that we all move faster, I know my own journey, right? And it was not an instantaneous journey to, to full affirmation. Um, I do have hope that that will move people closer to the right direction as the long arc of justice, as the long arc of history bends towards Uh, justice and inclusion. Yeah, it's two things, two things I want to say. One is the importance of what I would consider harm reduction. Yes. Right. It's, it's, I think that there is a real benefit to getting areas of Christendom, so the institutional church, to less harmful non-affirming theologies, right? Yeah. Like ultimately, I would like to see you moved to an affirming, a fully affirming theology, because I think that um, that that is what scripture and theology, scripture tradition and experience and reason all point us toward. Right. Um, But if you can't get there, uh, a version of non-affirming theology that says some people are gay (laughs) is far superior (laughs) to the version that does not acknowledge that and advocates uh, reparative therapies for, uh, for children. Right. Right. Or I mean at all, but including for children. Right. 
Um, and I think about, you know, at, at what point, you know, I've thought about this a lot. At what point do you, does agree to disagree fail to be an ethical position you can maintain? Right. And you think about this in the context of like the civil rights movement, like, uh, would you agree to disagree, uh, with other members of the, of your, the pastoral staff at your church and say, well, some of us believe that in equal civil rights for all Americans and some of us don't. And, you know, I mean, that's not a gospel issue. So we're just going to agree to disagree on it. I, you know, a lot of people would be unwilling to do that, but are willing today to be in that sort of agree to disagree position among, either between themselves and their denominational leadership or between themselves and uh, senior past senior pastor uh, leadership at their own congregation. Um, and on the one hand, I can see why agree to disagree is, uh, is morally unsatisfactory, right? For those reasons. But also from a sort of harm reduction perspective, you have to be concerned for people who are being raised in a church and their church attendance is not voluntary, right? It's not their choice to go there. They're being dragged there because they're kids and they're being raised in a church. And if you, if you can make that experience a little less traumatic, a little less abusive or exploitative, sure. Then you've done, you've done great good. Right. 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 Absolutely. And I think what we see in this is the battle between the ideological and the pragmatic. I don't know for sure. I don't know where Andy lands personally on an individual level. I get the impression that he wants to be fully affirming if he isn't already ideologically And that pragmatically he knows his audience and he knows where they are and he's been leading churches long enough to know that people don't just jump from one place to another, but that it's a journey of a thousand small steps. And I can appreciate that on on a pragmatic level. What makes it difficult for me is thinking about the – the gay and lesbian and transgender people that I know feeling as though it's their existence that is being compromised for the sake of the comfort of people who aren't willing to embrace it yet. Mm. And so I, I, I can't help but hear things like that through that lens. Um, and so I, I, I'm torn. I, I'm genuinely torn. I, I, I genuinely appreciate the steps in the right direction that I think that this is. And I can genuinely appreciate the heat that he is taking for this stance, moderate though it may be, at the same time wishing that there was a fuller and clearer statement of, of full affirmation for those people who have been historically oppressed and marginalized and whose, whose very lives and existence are called into question and them feeling like, you know, my existence 
is second to the comfort of the people in the pews. And that's a hard space to navigate. Harder for him than it is for me, right? I'm in a smaller church now in a more progressive church than I, than I was and in a more progressive church than he is. But still, at, at some point, I think we have to ask the question, whose comfort, whose well-being are we prioritizing? And if it's not the people whose very lives are in danger, pastorally, pastorally, I think their lives, I I, I think just that the nature of that, we've got to prioritize them, right? Nobody, I'll put it this way. I don't think anybody is going to leave Andy Stanley's church and kill themselves because their pastor said, we're an affirming church. They're just going to find another church that aligns with their views. But for gay, bisexual, lesbian, transgender people to hear that their reality and identity and existence is up for debate might be a life or death issue pastorally. Not prophetically, pastorally. I think it's worth taking a stand. And I do, I do think that the move he's making is an attempt to deal with that. Yes, I agree. Or welcoming, right? Yeah. Palatable, uh, survivable type of message and uh, s- worldview and perception of one's self. Right. Right. And I assume, and again, I don't know a whole lot about Andy Stanley or or his ministry or his writing, um, but I assume based on what I hear and hear in some of the specifics of the language and also um, I know that it was just recently announced that there's a a conference that he's hosting or his church is hosting uh, later this year. And uh, Justin Lee, who is the founder of the Gay Christian Network, um, who wrote the book Torn – is, is one of the, the speakers at that event. And I assume that, that there is some straightforward influence from Justin Lee to Andy Stanley in understanding and, and conceptualizing uh, this issue and what it means to grow up gay in the church. And I assume, I assume this is speculation, but I assume that Justin Lee is one of those people to whom Andy Stanley would point and say, look, look at the faith of someone who grew up through all this shit and yet remained steadfast and and focused on worshiping and knowing God. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so that the, the realities of the, the very real and um, all pervasive uh, pain and shame and uh, abuse that the church can level out on uh, anyone that anyone that the church others, but so specifically in this context, a young, young gay person. Um, that that is in fact instrumental in him making this the third point of this uh, uh, presentation and in trying to shape how other pastors in fact are yes. dealing with the realities in their own in their own congregations. 
right? Right. So I, I think, so I think that this is, to all appearances, motivated pastorally. Um, yes. But I think, I, I think that the pastoral thing is in fact to set a clear direction in terms of how you know our our theology of sexual ethics and i think that that clear direction is in the direction of a fully affirming church and to marry that with the prophetic right. i would say and i think we can close on this um in our next episode uh i want to talk about our own sort of approach to the to the question to Deriving biblical sexual ethics in the first place or Christian sexual yeah. ethics, the relationship right. to the Bible, but specifically, um, you know, LGBT issues, why you should be affirming the quote. Because there, there are all sorts of arguments for why and whether you should be affirming. And I think that there are good arguments and there are bad arguments. And I more often see the bad ones than the good ones right. by my, you know, by my lights, my perception. Um, and so I think that's what we want to talk about next time. But just to close out this time or just to close out, close out this episode – the the fundamental nature of prophecy is not throwing truth bombs and then getting in your car and leaving. The fundamental right. nature of prophecy is knowing what knowing what time it is. Yeah. And being willing to face the consequences for saying what needs to be said when it's unpopular, regardless of the consequences. Right? I mean, you, you look at the prophets, things didn't go so well for them. Right? They were raised up to speak in the midst of cultures and contexts when the message wasn't popular and wasn't going to be received, be received well, and they faced the consequences for it. And that's not, they weren't just doing it to collect a paycheck and move on that, that caricature <laughs> yeah. of that rubbed sure. me the wrong way. Sure. But no, but they were willing to face these consequences, not because they were, you know, gluttons for pain or because martyrdom, you know, came naturally to them or whatever, but because they had a perception of what time it is, yes. a perception of crisis, that there is a crisis either on the horizon or that we are living in the midst of. Right. Um, and the need to speak desperately to that situation. And if you look around the country right now, what time is it? It's a time of crisis on this question in particular, right? This issue in particular. And that might have seemed unexpected even a few years ago, right? Yeah. Like it seemed like, oh, it's this unfolding of history and the progress marches on and um, it's you – know, no, nobody will ever be uh, oppressed for being LGBT anymore. And, and to this day there are um, – you know, one of the c complaints of the Christian far right is, you know, the, the last person you can discriminate against is the straight white man, right? Like there's no such thing as heterosexual couples on television anymore and blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, woke Disney, woke Hollywood, woke uh, school districts. Um, but in fact, we've seen just in the past couple of years, it's it's becoming extremely dangerous in a way that it was for for many decades in the United States, right. but in a way invisible to the broad culture, invisible to popular culture, but very intimately known by queer culture, Yes, that there's a danger to that, right? Yes. And 
you know, I always think about what uh, Hauerwas said about Constantine and how Constantine had the perverse effect of making, you know, the situation before Constantine was that it required courage to be a Christian. Yeah. Yeah. And the easy way to get along was to join the Imperial cult or one of the officially approved religions. But the Constantine had the perverse effect of making it a virtue to be a pagan because you it required courage and Christianity became the, well, if you want to get ahead in this society, you have to publicly espouse Christianity, right? Um, And, you know, I think that there was a perception that for a few years, like it, you know, uh, once a year, Every company changes their logo to the gay pride flag, right? right. So there is this kind of like cheap pro LGBTQ sentiment. And it's really naked and obvious when people are exploiting that, right? right. And also those brands will drop that in a heartbeat if it changes their bottom line. Yeah, yeah. Right? They, they, they don't have any commitments and we know that, right? But there was a perception and, you know, maybe for maybe for a very, very brief moment, it was a reality that that we had had sort of had this flip where it required courage to be openly like anti-LGBT. Right. Right. Because you, I don't know, put your job at risk or whatever. Right. And there are, you know, these pockets of of places in, in society where that's true. Right. There are jobs where you could lose your job today for coming out against legal same-sex marriage to which i would say good like you know fine sure (laughs) but um but very quickly in you know in a in a heartbeat that condition has gone away and again it is quite frightening quite dangerous to be well to be openly queer right but then also to be uh on this, on the pro LGBT side, like there are real dangers to that. Right. And so I think it is like, we are at a critical moment, a critical juncture, a sort of hinge moment. And we don't know what a hundred years from now will look like. And it could look like two very, very different realities. And I think that it is a critical moment for not, and not just for the, the wild eyed prophet to throw truth bombs, but explicitly and specifically for your staid professional pragmatic people with institutional legitimacy to take a risk and put themselves on the side with the marginalized with the potentially outcast with Jesus right and i th- i think that's i think that's the the moment that we're in and i know that that sounds ridiculous to james white Right. I know to the to the far right, like they think like they, they have the exact opposite perception. They say right. every every uh, bit of uh, momentum and, and cultural hegemony uh, is is pushing the pro LGBT narrative, whatever. Um, but that's that's shallow. It is. That's a shallow analysis, shallow perception of uh, where we are. It and is. I th- and I think that the, the reaction to. What is a very, very well-crafted and persuasive and um, winsome presentation of a very, very moderate, even quite conservative uh, approach to ministry yes. gets this kind of reaction, shows the, the, the fury of the forces that we're, that we're dealing with. 
So, so that that's that's the the final thing I have to say. We will continue with this discussion in our next episode. Do you have more to add to that? No, I think all that uh, demands is an amen. Thank you for listening to All the Rage, a podcast investigating the Christian far right. All the Rage is recorded and produced by Thomas Horrocks and Nick Don Stanton Rourke. Find more, including Patreon and an open to the public Discord server, at the links in the description. The intro outro music is Dweller on the Threshold by Neolor, used under CCBY license. See you next time.